0: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz,
1: That is the sound of a fake fireplace that I sometimes play on my real iPhone when I really can't sleep. As a slumberer, I would give my performance a C. I sometimes have trouble falling asleep, and I almost always have trouble staying down. In my apartment, I've hung blackout drapes, stocked the pantry with melatonin, and have tried every variety of self-hypnosis, trying to force-quit consciousness. When I'm on tour, I'll collect all of the hotel pillows and build a pyramid of them on my face, trying to block out whatever it is that is keeping me awake at 5 a.m. This is Deeply Human. I'm Dessa, and if you can hear the sound of my voice, then you are awake. And I hope that's on purpose. That you're not just whiling away some exasperated minutes in the darkness, the dreaded morning bird song looming ever nearer, trying to coax your rescue dog of a brain to do the reasonable thing and come lie down for a while. The question of those angst-ridden hours, and of this program, is why can't I sleep? We often hear that screens and stress are to blame, but how much of our insomnia is really a product of the modern lifestyle? How much and how well do humans sleep? And why do so many of us struggle with sleeplessness? Let's begin with a little science. Let's talk body clocks.
2: I work very closely with Blind Veterans UK and these extraordinary individuals who've lost their eyes as a result of combat or disease. They're essentially time blind. Not only have they lost their sense of sight, but they've also lost their sense of time because the eye isn't able to detect the light-dark cycle and set the internal master clock within the brain. That is Russell Foster, director of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience
1: Institute at the University of Oxford.
2: And that term, circadian. It's the external light-dark cycle, particularly at dawn and dusk, that is detected by specialized receptors within the eye, which then set the master clock within the brain, and that allows us to be beautifully attuned and aligned to the external world.
1: Does our body know already that the day is 24 hours long, or does it learn that when we arrive on
2: the planet? This is what's, I think, so extraordinary, because the internal clock is a subcellular molecular clock. So we could take almost any cell in the body, put it in a dish and monitor its activity, and it would show a near, not exactly, but a near 24-hour oscillation.
1: Russell is something of a sleep evangelist, very pro-sleep. And he's enthusiastic in describing the manifold functions and benefits of getting a full night of it.
2: It's memory consolidation, the processing of information. Some really important data that's emerged recently has been the clearance of toxins and particularly some misfolded proteins, the plaques which have been associated with the development of Alzheimer's.
1: Sleep also plays a role in keeping the immune system healthy.
2: Studies have emerged in the last few years showing that if you are Tired or sleep-deprived prior to or immediately following an inoculation for a vaccine, then your antibody response is actually reduced if you're chronically tired. Russell thinks
1: that sleep is, well, slept on. Modern society doesn't value or prioritize it as it
2: should. We have become industrial creatures in the past, what, 200 years, and most rapidly since the 1950s, with the massive commercialization of cheap light at night through electric light. We've invaded the night, and in the process, we've abandoned sleep. So we're fighting against you know, millions and certainly hundreds of thousands of years of evolutionary biology, which has embraced sleep. I mean, it's really interesting to think how sleep was considered in the medieval period, Historical records suggest that
1: in many parts of the medieval world, a segmented pattern of sleep was the norm. People essentially slept in two shifts. The first would last for a couple of hours, and then you'd get up and maybe do some work or eat or drink or pray, have sex, visit with the neighbors, whatever. And in English, this period of the night was sometimes called the watch. Then you'd go back to bed for a second, longer sleep till morning. Historically, sleep has been prized, says Russell, in the Elizabethan era, people were practically writing love poems about it.
2: I just think of Shakespeare: "The honey-heavy dew of slumber, sleep, sleep, nature's soft nurse, have thy forsaken thee." We intuitively seem to embrace sleep. But wait a minute,
1: wait a minute, because, I mean, Shakespeare, hold on. Macbeth is an insomniac, right? His wife is a sleepwalker. Uh, Falstaff (laughs) has sleep apnea. The guy with the best take, right, on on sleep is Hamlet as he's contemplating suicide. (laughs) Like, everybody wants it and nobody's getting it. It seems like that was true even in Shakespeare's
2: time. Absolutely. But they realized that if they weren't getting it, they were in trouble. And now we actively fight against it.
1: At least in Shakespeare's time, the insomniacs had the sense to lament what they were missing. Whereas now, we might wear a sleepless night as a badge of honor, proof positive that we stay grinding. And everybody from Martha Stewart to Lil Wayne brags about how few hours they spend asleep. Okay, but let's pause on the historical and cultural analysis for a second. Let's turn to Moody Al-Rashid, a real-life insomniac. If I were to say, hey, Moody, what's your sleep life like? What do you say to me?
0: I'd probably just like burst into tears. (laughs) I have a toddler. I have anxiety. And we've just moved. And my sleep pattern is a feeling afraid in my bed. (laughs)
1: is definitely something that is familiar to me these days. Is it like essentially a thresholding thing that it's like all of the ghosts of my errors Concerns and fears haunt me around the clock, but I'm distracted from them in the daytime hours, whereas they have top billing at night when everything is dark and quiet.
0: There are no other stimuli. There are no distractions. There are no people to keep alive or dogs to feed or phone calls. You're really alone with your thoughts. And for me, that kind of amplifies anything that's going on in my head. I'd say at night, anxiety is
1: worse, which exacerbates sleep issues for sure. But Moody's perspective on insomnia is informed by a lot more than just personal experience.
0: I'm a historian of the ancient Middle East, ancient Assyria and Babylonia and the other civilizations that occupied what we call ancient Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, which is now where Iraq and Syria are. Did people suffer sleeplessness in the same way, as near as you can tell? I think it's hard to say for sure, but I do think there are lots of common denominators in the kind of context for sleeplessness, like feeling anxious or feeling depressed or experiencing other elements of mental distress.
1: That link between anxiety and sleep problems is worth underlining. The Sleep Foundation in the U.S. notes the possibility of a vicious cycle. It's hard to fall asleep if you're anxious, and then being tired just increases the next day's anxiety. But how exactly does Moody know about the complaints of people who did their sleeping thousands of years ago? As it turns out, she's got first-hand accounts, ancient medical texts, written in terracotta-colored clay in a language called Akkadian. Day to day, I'm
0: looking at someone's drawing of one of these objects. But when I get to actually go to a museum and look at one of these texts, it's a clay manuscript. So it's a clay tablet Some of them are sort of the size of an iPhone, but the medical texts are usually a little bit bigger, It's like a very geometric looking writing system. Akkadian is kind of like the great, great granddad, sort of, or grand aunt of Arabic, Hebrew, modern Assyrian, Aramaic, other Semitic
1: language family groups. Can you read Akkadian? I can, and I love
0: it. It's such a beautiful language.
1: An enormous number of these primary texts have survived for thousands of years. So we've got a real portal into the daily lives of people whose stories otherwise might have been lost to history.
0: The quite famous library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh was set on fire in the ancient world as part of a a sacking of the city.
1: And that bizarrely, perhaps, preserved all the tablets perfectly. In ancient Mesopotamia, as now, people might suffer insomnia for a variety of reasons. Somebody might complain of a bodily ailment that's keeping them awake at night. Yeah, so there's a description of the, the person, my spleen hurts and I can't sleep. Um, where is my spleen? Yeah, I don't know where I don't is. Where Where's your spleen? <laughs> I have not, not a clue. <laughs> or they might be stressed, a condition which seems to have an etymological connection to insomnia in the Akkadian language.
0: So, deliptu, it's a noun that means sleeplessness or can sometimes mean just being troubled in
1: some way. What are the odds that we can get deliptu trending on Twitter? I would say pretty high considering stuff going on uh, <laughs> in the world. <laughs> or trouble sleeping might have been a symptom of a larger issue, a cluster of complaints associated with a serious ailment. The Assyrians didn't have a sense of germs as pathogenic vectors. For them, sickness was often understood as the product of witchcraft. You got sick because somebody put a spell on you. What we call anti-witchcraft texts,
0: basically descriptions of medical experiences caused by witchcraft and then the corresponding rituals or incantations and medical prescriptions to
1: deal with those issues. There's a particular text that Moody thinks links insomnia with heartbreak, which... Is an association that will probably be familiar to anybody who has stayed up late at night scrolling the social media account of your ex-guy's new girl.
0: The treatment involves the patient reciting like a prayer or incantation addressed to Ishtar, the goddess of love and war in ancient Mesopotamia. And in that, he says, and it is a he, I am tired, I am exhausted, I am ill, I am vexed, I am sleepless, I am scared.
1: That sounds like a... I don't know. It sounds like a mashup on a new Phoebe Bridgers record. Like, that sounds like the hook.
0: (laughs) Yep. You know? (laughs) Super relatable. I am tired.
1: I am
2: exhausted.
1: Okay, big shout out here to Andy Thompson, musical genius, for that bit of bittersweet guitar on short notice.
0: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where...
1: Now, as you may already know, the consequences of not getting enough sleep can be pretty ugly. Let's go back to Professor Russell.
2: There's now a very important link between chronic sleep deprivation and cancer. It's a global impact on health.
1: Lack of sleep in the long term can result in a big list of garbagey
2: outcomes for both mind and body. Fluctuation in moods, increased irritability, anxiety, loss of empathy. We fail to pick up those social signals from friends and colleagues. One very important factor, of course, is risk-taking and impulsivity.
1: Cognitive impairment due to sleep deprivation has made history in some of our most memorable disasters. Think of the famous images from January 1986 when the U.S. launched the Challenger space shuttle.
0: We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. flight director confirms that. We are looking at... uh, Checking with the recovery forces to see uh, what can be done at this point.
2: The Challenger space shuttle disaster was a failure to appreciate consequences. And that's really very clear as a result of relatively short amounts of sleep disruption.
1: An investigation was launched to try to understand the cause of the explosion. And a report from the Human Factors Subcommittee listed severe sleep deprivation of NASA managers as a contributing factor. And in your own life, you've probably noticed that being super tired makes you less effective at whatever it is you're trying to do. I suck when I'm tired. I really suck. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very sensitive uh, to it. Yeah. But would you get in a car and drive? I know. I'm a touring musician, right? That's my my night job, I guess. And, um... In the beginning of my career, the way that we used to treat night drives was super cavalier, super cavalier, right? Everyone was worried about had you had too much to drink, but nobody was worried about how exhausted are you? And then I think collectively, a lot of people, at least in my community, learned because we were terrified of the stories of flipped vans. Night drives really scare me. I've definitely been in a vehicle where somebody has drifted off and the car has drifted onto the rumble strip. Because the thing is, when you really need sleep, you can't resist it through sheer force of will. Like physically, you cannot stop yourself from nodding off.
2: Yes, a microsleep is this sort of uncontrollable falling asleep. So you can actually be driving. They're these overwhelming, uncontrollable falling asleep episodes because you're chronically tired.
1: And a lot of people have experienced these microsleeps. Figures shared by the CDC report that 1 in 25 adults drivers in the U.S. say that they've fallen asleep while driving in the past 30 days. And drowsy driving contributes to over 100,000 accidents annually in the U.S. And being chronically tired can be particularly hazardous for people who work long hours or late into the night. Think of the insane schedules of medical professionals. Well, tired nurses and doctors do not perform the same way that well-rested nurses and doctors
2: do. The amount of time on the night shift can have a big effect upon accident rates and harm to patients.
1: If sleep is so important, then why aren't we valuing it? Why is Lil Wayne writing a song called No Sleep? Also, incidentally, the titles of songs by a bunch of other
2: rappers. And Martha Stewart is bragging about running on four hours a night. I think it goes back to a a rather Puritan time when work was was virtuous. And therefore, because when you sleep, you can't work, sleep must be bad.
1: In her book, Insomnia, Alunid Summers Bremner notes that Dutch Calvinists demanded that sleep be indulged in only in moderation and, I quote, English preachers of the 17th century made sleep into the equivalent of moral disorder, which is heavy. So let's go someplace untouched by Puritanism to see how humans sleep there.
3: I've actually spent extended fieldwork in uh, multiple sites, probably close to a year in Bolivia with the Chimane, maybe about three or four months with the San people in, in the Kalahari, also sometimes called the Bushmen. And more recently, I've spent maybe about three or four months with the Hadza in Tanzania, who are also hunter-gatherers. That is Gandhi Atish,
1: an anthropologist who studies the sleep habits of people who are not concerned with Calvinism or screen time or corporate burnout. Gandhi conducts his research by asking a lot of questions. How tired were you when you went to bed? Did you have any dreams? Did you wake up during the night? And he asks study participants to wear an accelerometer, a device kind of like a Fitbit, that records their patterns of physical activity.
3: These are populations where people don't have money, they don't have indoor plumbing. Most of them today live in relative isolation, and they certainly don't have a 9-to-5 work schedule, which is what makes them useful for studying sleep.
1: You are living with people who are in smaller communities, aren't connected to the grid in the same way that we are. Are they sleeping like, you know... Ten hours a night and uninterruptedly and waking fresh-faced every day like what is their sleep experience compared to ours
3: actual sleep uh, duration would be somewhere around six to seven hours per night which is actually pretty much the same pattern we have in the US if that surprises
1: you me too a lot of us somewhere along the way picked up the number eight you're supposed to get eight hours of shut-eye every night But recommendations from the National Sleep Foundation highlight how that changes over the course of development. Newborns are supposed to get 14 to 17 hours a day, which makes them horrible Dutch Calvinists. For adults, the recommendation is seven to nine hours, but the need varies from person to person, and night to night. The right amount of sleep for you is the amount that enables you to wake up well rested and ready for the day. Gandhi has recorded a notable difference, though, in the time that's earmarked for sleep in the communities he studied. They spend more time in bed.
3: Time in bed is your conscious decision, and sleep duration is not a conscious decision.
1: That means they don't have to optimize their horizontal hours to wring every minute of rest out of them. Like, there's a comfortable margin of error. Do you have a confident answer to the question, what
3: is normal human sleep? Normal human sleep fits into your day. Like you don't shape your day around your sleep. You shape your sleep around your day. When people ask me from the other side, like why study sleep? My new elevator pitch is that the only things that are important in your life will affect your sleep. So if something really great happens, you're staying up late, that affects your sleep. If you're really troubled by something and you're feeling anxiety, that affects your sleep. If you've ever read a magazine about getting better sleep, you've probably been
1: told how important it is to have a routine, to keep your bedroom a sanctum for rest. However,
3: I've found that consistency from night to night is totally a Western recommendation thing. When you have the ability to control your environment, You can try to do things like that and sleep at the same time every night and have these routines and rituals to kind of get yourself into the mood to sleep. But in the environments I've been working in, people don't have that level of control. It's the environment that tells them when to sleep, not their own ritual.
1: Are the populations that you've spent time with, are they as frequently tired as people who are living in
3: industrial societies? Definitely not. They are more rested and less tired. Why? I think that your sleep and your wake have to kind of reach this dynamic equilibrium. I think it's kind of where in our populations in the West where time is money, you really push yourself and you really take this flexible phenotype of sleep that we, we have the biological capacity to limit it to pursue waking activities and we really stretch it as far as it can possibly go to the point where we start suffering consequences.
1: Humans are made of flexible stuff. We adapt our schedules and lifestyles to our particular circumstances. And modern schedules have stretched the elastic about as far as it will go without starting to fray.
3: I think that it's almost like diabetes because we achieved something as a society where food is so plentiful and sugar is so abundant that we now get sick from it, that we're so good at staying up late after dark and making good use of that time that now that we're all chronically sleep deprived. We just push and push and push ourselves really
1: freaking hard.
2: The brain can become so tired it can't detect how tired it is. And we fool ourselves spectacularly into thinking you're perfectly okay, but actually your cognitive abilities are really, really on the floor. That,
1: of course, is our guy Russell again. So what steps can we actually take to
2: improve our sleep lives? Get as much natural light as possible, particularly in the morning. It sets the body clock, which sets the sleep-wake cycle. And morning light is really good for stabilizing most people. Skip the sleeping pills. All of the currently available sleeping tablets have the problem that they sedate you. They don't provide a biological mimic for sleep.
1: And don't get too caught up in the sleep apps and all
2: their color-coded analytics. Some of the problems that people are getting with commercially available apps are really sending them into a tailspin. One person came up to me before COVID and said, my app is telling me I don't get any slow-wave sleep. And so this chap actually would wake himself up at three o'clock in the morning to check how much slow wave sleep his app was telling him had. first of all these apps are really bad at telling us about slow wave sleep and all the rest of it and we don't even really understand what slow wave sleep is for so roughly when did you go to sleep when do you wake up how many interrupts in, in the night that's kind of useful information but i think More than that, it can be misleading and, in fact, really rather harmful. It generates more anxiety. So take them with a pinch of salt.
1: God, it does have a real cool, like, fireplace sound, though, that I got super into.
2: Yeah. But it's like so much of technology. It's deeply seductive. All right,
1: James. James, hit me. Oh, that's so nice. It's just so nice. How could you not like that? Oh... Okay, cut it. I don't want anybody falling asleep before we're done. Given that sleep is so fundamental, I mean, why is it that we suck at getting enough of it?
2: Sleep is just another victim of human arrogance that we're above the grubby world of biology. We're not. We expect to do whatever we want, whatever time of day. And we now know that that's not possible. I think things are changing. Now we appreciate, and society is appreciating, the incredible value of sleep. I've noticed
1: that shift too. Friends, colleagues, famous people that I follow online, all seem to be recognizing the importance of rest. The nap ministry, which frames rest as a form of resistance, has almost half a million followers on Instagram alone which can be cold comfort if you're walking down a mental staircase in your head at 3 a.m., furious that your body seems so reluctant to meet its own biological imperative. A final thought from Moody, our insomniac assyriologist. That <laughs> is an amazing phrase. During a hard night, awake in bed, knowing that you need rest and unable to get it, have you recited that incantation?
0: I have tried a lot of things, but I haven't tried that, and you've just given me the idea, why not? Tonight? Tonight is the night. <laughs> Ishtar, you'll be hearing from me.
1: <laughs> we may struggle to sleep because we're anxious, and then struggle to quell our anxieties because we're tired. Hashtag two. And more generally, we struggle because we've tried to slot sleep into a neat little window in our schedules. We expect ourselves to do it on command at the hour that is most convenient for the rest of our more important lives. But falling into sleep, like love, is not entirely self-determined. You can only set the mood and then make way for time and gravity to do their work. And that, my far-flung friends, is our last program of Deeply human second season, which means it's time to roll credits. So why don't you just, why don't you just tuck in, and we'll do this ASMR style. Our series producer is Simon Maben. Producers are Arlen Gregorius, Ellie House, Beth Sagar-Fenton, Sandra Kenthal, and Craig Templeton-Smith, with help from Hannah Uguru and Mae Cameron. Our editor is Hugh Levinson. Our production coordinator is Janet Staples. And this season was mixed by my rival, James Beard. Speaking of... James, will you hit the... Oh, you're good. I'll give you that. You're a very talented archenemy who really strives for excellence and takes pride in his work. Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American public media co-production with iHeartMedia. It's written and hosted by me, Dessa. Dessa. Find me online at Dessa on Instagram and Dessa Darling on Twitter. Okay. Shh. James. James. Okay, they're out. Let's go eat another dessert and watch scary movies with swear words. Cat, being adults is awesome.